in West Seattle, everybody. My name is Prentice, uh, and if I have not met you yet, I would love to do that. Uh, I get the privilege to be the lead pastor here, uh, and what a, what a rainy day. I have a feeling uh, that there will be a bit more people watching online. So for those of you that are watching online, welcome to you too. Uh, so glad that you can join us. Uh, we are continuing our series called One Another. Uh, and, and so this morning, we, we asked the question, what does it mean for us to uh, be in the same mind with one another, as Scripture says? And so that's something we'll be unpacking. I know we've had an, an unusual uh, month or so with a couple weeks ago, the power going out, and so thus not having service. Uh, last week, being at Bethany Green Lake, which was an incredible service, uh, but I assure you, uh, starting now, things will be a little bit more normalized, and uh, again, 9.30 here on Sundays, uh, rain or shine. And so um, thank you for those that have made it here or online. We're so glad that you're here. Uh, today's text comes from Philippians uh, chapter 2, uh, verse 1 and 4. Uh, so for the reading of God's word, can we stand? If then there is any encouragement in Christ, any consolation from love, any sharing in the spirit, any compassion and sympathy, make my joy complete. Be of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord with one another. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility regard others as better than yourselves. Let each of you look not at your own interests, but to the interests of others. Let's pray. God, thank you for this season, even in the rain, even in the wind. Uh, you're here in the midst of us, and you love us, and you care for us. And, and each person here brings their own stuff as, as well as I do. And so thank you for meeting us right where we're at. God, speak to us, teach us, form us, convict us, heal us. May we believe that Sunday morning isn't just a checkbox that we do and we go to church and that's it, but may we, each and every one of us here, again, including myself, believe that this morning you are on the move and we leave here as changed people. In your name we pray, amen and amen. <clears throat> By the way, uh, speaking of new seasons, uh, Marie and I are very excited that uh, this week there's a new Starbucks drink dedicated to Taylor Swift, okay? In case you are interested, that's there. Okay, I'm the only one, okay. I have no idea what it is, but it has her name on it, and that's all I need to know, and uh, I'm a big fan. So, okay, now let's get started. Uh, a few years ago, I, I was in a staff training session at Bethany. It was, a, it was an all-Bethany staff training, so there was about 50 or 60 of us, uh, and we did this exercise around conflict resolution and conflict management. Raise your hand if you've ever been in a conflict with somebody before. Okay, May, not all of you, that's wonderful, but most of you, like me, uh, you have. And, and I really thought this was really helpful. And, and so the exercise we did was that we each paired up with a coworker, uh, and within those pairs, one person would draw a card out of a basket. And, and out of that basket was a scenario, a make-believe scenario uh, 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 of a conflict that we had to deal with. 
And the conflict that I drew was that my partner and I, we were doing a group project, and I had to do all the work. What do I do? And the training that we received was what we would call the, maybe you've heard of it, the SBI model, which stands for Situation, Behavior, and Impact. What that means is that anytime during conflict and you want to approach somebody about that, now keep in mind, uh, if that was a real situation and I had to do all the work in a group project, I would have my own way of dealing with it. Now, uh, I'm glad that there are alternative methods like the SBI that we were taught. And so uh, the idea is this. When you want to approach someone in conflict, you present the situation, uh, the specific situation. After you present that, then you talk about the behavior. What, what, what are the facts? Without making any assumptions, without judgment, without shame, without guilt, what are the facts of what happened, which then leads to I impact? What was the impact of that behavior? What, uh, what are the consequences of that? And now the whole idea of this model was this, and it was brilliant. It was that any time during conflict, uh, we remove the idea of getting things personal, and we just reveal and talk about the facts, the situation, the, the, the heartache, the pain, and, and that's it. It's essentially what many of us would say, keeping the main thing the main thing. Because let me ask you this, and I won't make you raise your hand on this one. Have you ever been in an argument with somebody or, or, or conflict, and you keep going back and forth, back and forth, and you go back and forth so many times that you actually forget what the entire argument was about in the first place? And at that point, all you care about is getting your point across. All you care about is winning the argument. All you care about is debating. And all you care about is proving why the other person is incorrect and why your way is the best. And again, I won't, raise your, I won't make you raise your hand, but I've done this before many times. And so this SBI model, you know, the main point of this is, hey, don't forget what the conflict is about. And it's about the conflict, not the person. But ultimately, we tend to forget that. And again, like I said, many of us, and I myself included, have gone into arguments back and forth, back and forth, where I forget the entire point. And if you've ever experienced this, then you might actually understand what Paul was facing when he was writing Philippians uh, to the Philippian church. Uh, and really the problem that we as a church are facing today. And here's what I'm talking about. We have forgotten to keep the main thing the main thing. I love how Dan, uh, Daniel Lachick, a Christian author, he, he says this. He says, dare I say we have become separated from one another in ways we have not seen since the 16th century uh, when the church during the Reformation exploded into countless fractured pieces. Let me just stop right there. Just like the church that this author is talking about, just like the time period in the 16th century, he feels like we as a church, and I would agree with this, are going through very similar things where, where we, we've lost our ways. We have not kept 
the main thing, the main thing, the main thing being Jesus. Jesus' life, death, and resurrection as the core of who we are as a church and as individuals. We have lost uh, the main thing as the main thing, and thus you see all these fractured divisions and polarizations and oppression and marginalization. And you see all of that. You do not have to go far in order to see how fractured not only uh, we as a church, and I don't mean just Bethany, but I mean, I mean the church universal. You don't have to go far to see how fractured we are. The author continues and says this, we have lost our connection to Jesus. The all-wise one who has called us together. We have lost the way to build the kingdom of God that Jesus called us to. And I would say this, we've abandoned the main, many of us, we've abandoned, myself included, many of us, we've abandoned the main thing, the gospel, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And have instead, and you see this everywhere, we've attached ourselves to something else. When God calls us to keep God, the, the cross, the life, the death, the resurrection at the core of who we are, and yet we, we've abandoned that because we fall into the temptation of the things that, that we see in the media, the things that we hear uh, from, from our friends, the echo chambers that we're a part of. And, and I would say we've abandoned the main thing and instead have attached ourselves to, to things like politics and politicians to the pursuit of wealth and to material possessions, to status, to upward mobility. We've abandoned the main thing as followers of Jesus, Jesus, and instead of reattached ourselves to other idols in our lives. You see, I used to say that the problem we face, especially us as Christians, is that oftentimes our downfall is that our spiritual equation becomes Jesus plus something else. And oftentimes I would say uh, the reality is, the truth should be, it's Jesus plus nothing. But the reality is, the real reality is that in our lives, it's always Jesus as something else. You may not want to say that out loud. You may not want to admit that, but just look at the way you spend your time. Look at how you treat people. Look at your checkbook. Look at uh, the things that surround you in your life, and that will tell you what your Jesus plus something else. But I would say we are right now in an even more dire situation, not to sound so hopeless. But from what I see, Jesus plus something is no longer the equation. In fact, Jesus oftentimes is no longer even in the equation, and it's always just that plus something else. I wish it was Jesus plus something, but then we have something to work with. But now it's become no Jesus and just that something. And as the author says, we've lost our way and we have run towards our different directions. And it's no wonder we're so divided. It's no wonder we're so polarized. And so it's no wonder that we, we so easily become the hero of our own story and villainize anybody else that think differently than us. Because oftentimes, each of those directions that we run to oppose one another. And maybe you've heard something like this before. Oh, I'm a Republican. Well, you're a Democrat. So, so, so we can't have 
a friendship together. I'm rich. You're not rich. I can't associate with you. You're white. I'm a person of color. We can't be friends. Oh, uh, I support Black Lives Matter, and you support All Lives Matter. We're basically enemies. These are the kind of narratives that are fed. And these are the attachments that we run to. We've abandoned the main thing, which is centering our lives and even our community around Christ. We've abandoned that, and we've ran and reattached ourselves to something else. And that's the problem. That something else usually vandalizes that something else that someone else chooses, and now we're forced to be enemies. Now we're forced to be enemies. A couple weeks ago, uh, I went to Washington, D.C., and I went to the African American History Museum, which, by the way, if you have an opportunity to do that and go there, do it. It it was incredible. It was powerful. In fact, I want to go back uh, and see the things that I missed. But on the wall, there was a quote that kind of haunted me for the rest of the day, Uh, and it was by this philosophical theologian. Maybe you've heard of him. His name is Soren Kierkegaard. Uh, And on the wall, the quote said this, as soon as you label me, you negate me. As soon as you label me, you negate me. See, oftentimes when we detach ourselves from the main thing, from Jesus, life, death, and resurrection, and reattach ourselves to whatever that something else, now we're labeling. We're labeling ourselves, or we're labeling the others. We strip away our identity as being created in the image of God, fearfully and wonderfully made. We strip that away and we label ourselves with a political affiliation, with a net worth, with the status, with an upper mobility, with a job title, whatever it is. We label ourselves with that. And what Kierkegaard is saying, as soon as you label yourself or others, we diminish our own humanity. Because at the core of who we are, Once we strip away and before all those labels, we are created, each and every one of us, whether you like the person next to you, whether you like the person you're in conflict with, whether it's someone that you despise, whether you like it or not, each and every person is created in the image of God. Every one of us bear God's image. That's who we are. And yet we negate ourselves by stripping that away and putting on and attaching ourselves to certain idols. Now, Paul, from the the verses that we read, just a little bit of background, Paul planted the church in Philippi, hence the letter to the Philippians, to Philippi, it's called Philippians, uh, around 51 A.D., And so when Paul plants the church and when he was going on his missionary journeys, he goes around and plants these churches. He he plants a church in Philippi. Now, 10 years later, he is in prison in Rome. This is around 61 AD. And and maybe this might be hard to imagine, but he's in a Roman prison. And the first thing he thinks about that his heart breaks for is this church that he planted 10 years ago. Because what happened was he caught wind that in the church of Philippi that he started 10 years ago, there was massive amounts of division, uh, of even violence, uh, of disunity. And even 10 years later, that broke his heart. And so he writes a letter. 
And now, all throughout the chapters of Philippians, we don't actually know what the conflict was. We can make some guesses. And many theologians, what they would say is that throughout the, 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 the letter to the Philippians, what they see is there's a lot of identifying of heresy, of false teachers, and perhaps, and this is the best guess, is that there was a lot of division because people attached themselves to certain leaders, to certain teachers, maybe even to some core doctrine, or maybe to some theology, or maybe how to do a daily life, or how to worship, or how to eat, and what not to eat. There's these things that people attach themselves to, and most likely that's what the division was. Does that sound familiar to you? Again, us attaching, well, first of all, detaching ourselves from the main thing and reattaching ourselves to things that become divisive because we're all choosing different things. And this is the context in which Paul is writing. In fact, not only is there disunity within the, the church uh, in general, there is specifically even uh, uh, disunity between two leaders in the church. In Philippians chapter 2, uh, he says this, I plead with Eudea, and I plead with Syntyche uh, to be uh, of the same, again, here's that word, same mind in the Lord. Yes, I ask you, my true companion, help these women since they have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel. Now, again, we still don't know what's happening. We don't know what's happening between these two women. What we do know is that these two were leaders in the church, prominent figures, and there was some kind of disunity. And so the pattern of disunity is the essential thread of what weaves Philippians together. Yes, there's other reasons why Paul wrote it, but that seems to be the big reason. Now, in chapter 2, because of all the disunity and discord, uh, Paul here pleads with the church. And he starts off with this, and I think it's really funny because I've heard something like this before. Uh, he says, if then there is any encouragement in Christ, any consolation from love, any sharing in the Spirit, if, there are any, if there's any compassion and sympathy, <clears throat> then make my joy complete. Then do, th essentially, then do this for me. And now, in no way, shape, or form do I think Paul was manipulative or, uh, or anything. But, you know, we've heard this kind of language and this kind of rhetoric before. This was kind of sarcastic uh, or rhetorical. In some translation, it ends up being even a question. And the questions would be something like this. Have you ever received any encouragement from Christ? Have you ever received love from Jesus? Have you ever received compassion and sympathy? Then do me a favor and do this. Have you ever had a friend that's like, hey, haven't I ever done like nice things for you? Will you then do me this favor? Haven't I given you things before? Haven't I provided for you before? Then will you return the favor? I, I've done something like that before. I've heard something like that before. The point is this. Paul knows that in, in all of these questions, the answer is yes. Have you ever felt love, compassion, and sympathy from Christ? Duh, the answer is yes. Have you ever received uh, encouragement from Christ? Duh, the answer is yes. If that is so, then do me a favor. He says, then make my joy complete by being like-minded. Hear, hear those words again. 
be like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and one in mind. Now, what does this mean? What does it mean to be like-minded? And before we go there, let me start with what being like-minded is not. Paul here is not implying that everybody should agree on everything. He is not asking for pure uniformity. In fact, that actually wouldn't make sense at all because Paul himself didn't have uh, that kind of uniformity with his own companions. For example, Paul, Paul and Barnabas went separate ways. Paul and Peter disagreed on what to do with food. Paul had his own disagreement. So there's, there's no way Paul actually meant by having the same mind means that you just need to agree and see eye to eye on everything. No, that is not what that means. You see, the words uh, like-minded uh, happens over a dozen times in the New Testament. Is this Greek word phroneo. Phroneo. And in the original language and context, it was far more than just about intellect. It wasn't just, oh, intellectually, I have to agree with what you intellectually believe. It was far more than the intellect, but it was also about disposition. It was about the will. It was about purpose. Now, be like-minded. Have that in common, whatever that purpose is, whatever that end goal is, whatever that disposition is. And so it wouldn't, so, so, it, so if it doesn't mean literally think the same thing, then what does it actually mean? Now, stay with me here. Here's what one commentator says. He says, the verb from neo often uh, used 10 times in Philippians, 23 times in Paul, 26 times in the New Testament, means to think. But not only or even primarily into, in the intellectual sense, like we just said, it equally involves one's emotions, attitudes, and will. It denotes both interest and decision at the same time. Hence, this expression cannot mean that Paul here pleads for uniformity of thought or that he insists on everyone holding in common a particular opinion. This is the important part. Rather, by his choice of the verb proneo, to think, he is asking for a total inward attitude of mind or disposition of will that strives after that one thing that is greater than the human truth, a unity of spirits and sentiment in which powerful tensions are held together. I love that part. Have this in mind, that you will be held together in the spirit that overwhelm, that, that, that overmasters loyalty to each other as brothers and sisters in Christ. I love this. What this commentator is essentially saying is that Paul is essentially, is essentially saying, yes, you can have your own beliefs. Yes, you can have your own opinions. Of course, you can have your own perspectives. But at the end of the day, what is the mind of Christ? And so I don't want us to misunderstand what it means to be of the same mind. It doesn't mean be of the same mind of one another. There's a bigger picture here. What Paul is pleading is that because you've received encouragement and love and compassion and sympathy from Christ, will you be same or like-minded as Jesus? And as both of you or different parties in conflict or whatever it is, not decide to try to convince the other person to what 
I myself am thinking or believing. It's about, okay, asking the question together, what is the mind of Christ? What does Jesus want for us in this particular moment? In this particular time, what is it that Christ wants? Essentially, as we've detached ourselves from the main thing and have attached ourselves to different political figures, to different news sources, whatever it is, Paul's plea for us is to go backwards, detach ourselves from whatever that is. You, you fill in the blank and reattach yourselves to make Christ the main thing, the main thing, and then ask the question, everyone together, Jesus, what, what is your mind in this? What do you have for us? It's not about asking our politicians. It's not about checking our social media feed for the answers. It's not about reading our favorite news sources, not going to our echo chambers. The question is, what is the mind of Christ? And when we ask that, when we truly, authentically ask that, I promise you there will be conviction. There will be discomfort even. Because oftentimes the mind of Christ is about reconciliation. Sometimes the mind of Christ is about seeking forgiveness. Sometimes the mind of Christ is making the first move. Sometimes the mind of Christ is not violence, or that's all, all the time. It's, sometimes it's not about fighting, uh, you know, having the last word, or, or if someone puts you down, you retaliating. Sometimes and oftentimes the mind of Christ is very counterintuitive to what the world and what the society and whatever the things that you've attached yourselves to says. You know, I say this often. Several years ago, and, and maybe you know this, there used to be this uh, commercialized slogan, uh, and it was an acronym uh, that went WW. JD. Now, I'm still really bitter and upset that that slogan got a bit, uh, you know, commercialized and hijacked. And, and you're right, like maybe it's not something I go around saying all the time. But just, just get to the heart of that question. What would Jesus do? I know it, me even saying that out loud is kind of, kind of cheesy, but, and I hate that I think that because I think that is such a good question to ask. What would Jesus do? In other words, and this question is, what would be the mind of Christ? When you're going on social media and you have an, an itch to retaliate or put in your two cents, when you're in conflict with someone and you want to prove them wrong, you know, when you've uh, detached yourself from the main thing and attached yourself to something else, an idol, the question is, what is the mind of Christ in that? That is a hard question. And oftentimes we won't like the answer. But can you imagine a, a, a church, again, not just Bethany West Seattle, I'm talking about the church, when we put aside our own mind, when we put aside the very things that we have attached ourselves to, and unattached to that, and then re reattached, to the main thing, to Jesus, life, death, and resurrection. And if we all had that like-mindedness, what would the world look like? What would the world look like if the question wasn't just, how can I win? How can I prove my point? But asking the question together, what does Jesus have for us here? 
things would look so differently. Things would look so differently. My hope and my encouragement, and I'm going to have the worship team come back up as we enter into a time of reflection, is to ask ourselves, where in our lives have we pushed out the main things? Jesus, life, death, and resurrection. And where have we then attached ourselves or really the better question is, what have we attached ourselves to? Now, I'm not saying politics is wrong. I'm not saying, you know, pursuing, you know, career investments and, and wealth and, and possessions. I'm not saying any of those are wrong. But it becomes wrong when that becomes the very thing that we place our identity in. Maybe this morning we do an inventory of our hearts and we name the things that we have placed above Christ. And may this morning we, and I'll use a, a Christian word, may we repent from that. In other words, turn away from that and turn toward God bringing God back at the center of our lives and in any relationship and any conflict of any pain of any hurts of any sadness of any grief we would be like minded as Christ and just receive God thank you ourselves from you and created our own idols, our own voices, our own answers to life's problems, which really ultimately just creates more problems and more conflict and more arguments and more division. Now help us to turn from that and run back to you as you receive us with open arms. And in all of our relationships, may we be like you. May we ask the question, what, is, what does it mean to be like-minded with you? Convict us and show us what to do next. We thank you. In your name we pray. Amen and amen. Let's continue in worship.